Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, and welcome to another special edition of Sentimental Garbage, where we talk about the novels that are getting us through the coronavirus. My name is Caroline O'Donoghue, and I'm a writer and a Broadway star who can't keep a husband. Joining me is writer and Swedish sleep cure, Ella Risbridger. Hi! Hi! Back again. Back again. Today we're talking about The Valley of the Dolls by Jacqueline Suzanne, a book I just started reading last week and then screamed at you until you read it too. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what I was expecting. I was not expecting this. The thing I have to say about this book is that if you haven't read it, you must read it now. Run down walk to your nearest Kindle and read this book you should probably have some kind of drink with it. Oh, yeah. I was so drunk for so much of reading this. I was so sober and I regret it. I wanted I wanted to take a lot of pills and drift away. I wanted to take some dolls. <laughs> take some dolls. Yeah, so this has been sitting on my bookcase for like a while. I kind of bought it about a year ago because I was like... My first, my kind of strategy for this podcast first was I'm gonna, I was going to read the books first, find the books first, and then find the guests. And it actually, it ended up being the other way around, where I found the guests and then I found the books. So this was one of these things where I was like, oh, I'm going to do this with somebody. And it's just been sitting there for ages. And I just gravitated towards it while wearing my indoors caftan during quarantine, plucked it from the shelf, dragged the beanbag out into the balcony, and like read all of it on Easter Sunday with a beer. And it was delicious. And I just... also felt the need to put on a dressing gown while reading this book. Um, you know that little purple one with the birds on? I think it was a present for yeah. you. Whoa, oh my god! Yeah, I know. it was a present for me. Very yeah. floaty, very good Valley of the Dolls wear. Very yeah, short. Kind of, yeah. Very saucy. Just drifting around, being like, oh, I'm so exquisite. Perhaps if I <laughs> was depressed, I could take some drugs. Which is the moral of this book. And just being like, where? Wh- what is my husband? He's probably having an affair again. <laughs> And just like putting the the back the, the flat of your hand to your forehead and being like I'm 29, too old for children. I think so. I want to make sure we do this book properly and in order because I feel like sometimes we get so used to talking that we get ahead of ourselves a bit. Yeah. But I do want to make sure we talk about age in this book, age and time, because in this book you're dead by the time you're 30. Yeah. But also if you're Beautiful and smart enough, you never have to get to thirty. <laughs> you can just you can have, have a very, age. You can have a Swedish sleep cure where they will put you in a coma to make you young again. You can have a facelift. You can have you can be the face of a makeup line. There are so many things you can do to become to remain young up until the point you can't, when everyone will despise you and you might as well be dead because you have to wear a wig. <laughs> and the, yeah, the only thing you can do is disappear. The only tasteful thing. Uh, I'm going to get into the plot summary. Um, Please do. I am so looking forward to seeing how you try and summarise this book. (laughs) This book, which is um, 420 pages, give or take. And um, 
it's basically a soap opera, really, isn't it? It's like there's there, no, nothing ever begins, nothing ever quite ends, nothing is really wrapped up. Like plots just keep getting bolted on, more and more crazy antics keep getting bolted onto the existing plot until it's just this unwieldy beast kind of just knocking fucking bottles of scotch into pools. But I'm going to try. Okay. So. When 20-year-old Anne Wells moves from New England to New York in the summer of 1945, she's pretty enough to be a model, but settles for being a secretary at a theatrical agency. Here she meets a host of showbiz characters, including Neely, a vaudevillian teenager, Jennifer North, a starlet fresh from a marriage to an Italian prince, Helen Lawson, an aging Broadway star, and Lion Burke, a wannabe writer who Anne falls in love with. Over 20 years, the novel covers their rise and fall through show business as each woman battles with age, men, and their mutual pill addictions. (laughs) Um, I think that's the best you can do to like a short plot summary without yeah. like I think getting into Sparks notes about it. I think the best thing you said there was that it's a soap opera. It's a soap opera, a very beloved soap. It's like reading a recap of a soap opera that everyone else has been watching for 20 years. Yeah. And it kind of feels like that in general tone as well. Like, here's what you missed last week on Neely's Life. Completely, and it's always like recapping itself. As it almost feels like it was written for like a Dickensian sort of like uh, serialization format, because it's constantly recapping, being like, as you might remember, Neely had some twins she neglected. <laughs> Do you know what I mean her twins, Bud and Judd? Bud and Judd. Those the names um, of her twins. Like right up top, before we get into any like deep issues about this book, and there are so many. There, like, I want to put a trigger warning for all potential triggers. <laughs> if you have you know, if you don't like hearing about, say, um, rape, fat shaming, um, homophobia, any any and all of these issues, any cancer. offense, cancer, um, they're all dealt with in this book insensitively. But I remember reading this because, like, you you generally don't. I don't think you'll mind me saying, like, reading about like a lot of medical stuff, a lot of hospital stuff. I do. So not. when I, when I was halfway reading this, I was like, oh, there's a big like cancer scene. Maybe Ella won't like this. And then I read the cancer scene. I was like. This is so ridiculous in camp that Ella will love this. Honestly, I don't read anything really with cancer or brain injuries because it makes me miserable for obvious backstory reasons that you don't need to know. You can Google it. Um, V boring. But I don't read those. There are cancer and brain injury stories in this book and I loved it. They're just not real. It's just not of this We will get really... We will really unpack that cancer scene. But nobody in this book exists. Nothing bad can really happen to them because you can always go back to the beginning. And I know that's true of most books, but this one, you really feel like they're dolls. I was going to say, what I did not expect the dolls to be sleeping pills and uh, speed. I thought the dolls were them. Yes, and like, I don't know if you have it in your Kindle edition, but in my Virago Modern Classic edition, there's a big foreword from Julie Burchill and she's like, yeah, the Valley of the Dolls. We think the do- of the dolls as being the women. And they... It fits because they are these kind of pretty dress-up things that um, are sort of like sort of used and battered around like toys at the back of a chest, and then they sort of there's a sort of like this pulsing rage that goes through it. Because the thing about this book that I find really compelling is that it is trashy, it is so proper-y, but there's this like behind all this silliness feels like real anger, like ang- like uh, uh, what feels like a real feminist anger at like. These, these women who are absolutely abused by the men that with they're abused by the systems that are run by men that they're with like they're it's angry at like the 
the lengths that it forces women to go to so they have to like have this plastic surgery like ha- take these pills develop these addictions just so that they can sort of you know outrun time outrun their own kind of sell-by dates it and is then su- yeah it is such an angry book yeah every character in it's despicable there is yeah, nobody everyone. in this book who is not despicable and i don't mean that in the way we talked about with the changeover or before that with brother of the former more famous jack where hey people are complex and some good people do bad things and bad people do good things no these people are just disgusting just wretched they are wretched they are appalling they are homophobic they are very fond of having gay sex and then being like but we're not lesbians that would be <laughs> disgusting that's a that's basically a quote isn't it we're not le- yeah, we're not like those lesbians um they... There are several characters who are constantly having gay sex, but but um, talking their way out of it being gay, which feels of the time. The whole book is of its time, but you have to. It's it's set in a specific time, and it belongs to that time. And I I found it very difficult to even feel to think about being offended at this book. Yeah, the portrayals of characters who are in some ways like me or in some ways not like me or things like cancer or brain injuries in which I have a kind of vested interest in them being portrayed sensitively and carefully and with thought and which in other books have made me furious. Bad and portrayals you just, of And you just things. didn't care in this. I did not care. I screamed. I... <laughs> I loved... I have never read a funnier description of someone having cancer. <laughs> which is a... <laughs> a niche... Which is a niche, I, yeah. Like, and it, 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 the thing, it is like, but the thing is, because all these things that we're saying, we are kind of trashing it, right? Like, it, but the thing, something about writing a good, bad book is almost harder than writing a good book, right? Because the thing is, it's like these things, it is ridiculous, it is outsized, it does deal with these issues in a not very sensitive or like, you know, subtle way. Um, and yet it's so compelling. I enjoyed it. I I hated the characters, but I still liked them. Do you know what I mean? I like, didn't want to put it down. I read this... How many pages is it? 420. I am a fast reader, but I don't remember the last time I read a 420-page book in a day. I just did not want to put this book down. I wanted to know everything that was going to happen to them, and then I wanted to ring Caroline and say... Oh my fucking life, you will not believe what has just happened to Neely. They've put Neely in a bath. They've put Neely in the bath. Uh, which, is, which is... The thing about this book is that it feels exactly, and I imagine millions of people have had this experience with this book, like picking up a book in a holiday house. Mm-hmm. You can smell other people's sun cream. You can feel the pages are all crinkly from where it got dropped in the sea and then in yeah. the bath. And the thing is, maybe there's a chapter missing in the middle where the pages blew, got sand in the binding and blew into the sea. You wouldn't know. <laughs> no. If yeah, I had like... missed two years of Neely's life, mm-hmm. uh, you'd get a recap eventually, you know? You know, oh, Neely has twins now. Literally, she doesn't give... You just wake up one day and Neely's got twins. Yeah, yeah, it, it actually, you're, it's such a good description, and it does feel like some chapters just blew into the sea. Like, there's there's bits where, um, like, say if, if, and I think I said this to you before, but if you and I were given, like, the outline for this book and were told to ghostwrite Valley of the Dolls with just, like, the kind of, the plot yeah. points told to be hit, and they were like, okay, um, between sort of 19, 
1948 are three main characters these three girls who are all in their late teens or early 20s share a flat together you and I would be like oh my god amazing and it would be 150 pages of like showgirls (laughs) in the 40s having a lovely time getting back late from the show and confiding in each other and gassing away and all this and diaphragms and all this but it's it's everything pleasant that happens in this book. Every time where people are friends or people are having a nice time in their marriage is maybe three pages. And everything awful in this book is drawn out like a fucking Russian masterpiece. What's interesting is Anne, who is our main character at the beginning. I don't think she's the main character of the book, but certainly the book is kind of framed by her story. She yeah, comes, I see she's Anne the one as being the to, lens. Yeah. yeah, she's the one who comes to New York. She meets Neely, who is a teenage showgirl and Jennifer, who's just married a prince, who's just getting divorced from the prince. He turns mm. out to have no money. He was a bankrupt. He was a fake prince. He was a real prince. But doesn't... What's she going to do? Rot in Italy? In a castle? I don't think so. She's Jennifer North. And Anne falls in love with Lion Berg, the best-named man of all time. He is a tormented writer. He loves to be in the north of England, where they only get a few hours of daylight every day. <laughs> That famous, that famous thing about it's like being in the Arctic once you're in Yorkshire. Really, it's just dark all the time, and it, I don't know, it's dark and there's no heating, and it's it's better for art. Anyway, she's in love with Lionberg. Lionberg is very clear about what he can offer her, which is nothing, absolutely Nothing. nothing. And every time she's with him, she says, "These are the only happy moments I shall ever have," and they are. And this and... is a woman who is magnificently beautiful, who has the best luck of anyone in the world. Like everywhere, she, every time she walks into a building, someone offers her a modeling contract. And the only time in the entire book she's happy is maybe collectively 10 days. 10 days when Lion Burke is telling her she's pretty. Yeah. And he always does tell her she's pretty. And he always does tell her he loves her. But it won't be enough. I wonder whether it's... I'm going to try and find his letter to her. About... Yeah, let... Yeah, I just want to like fill in the audience on Lionberg, who like is possibly the uh, most accurate and most searing parody of uh, men who write capital W M capital W capital W again men who write in literature. In that he's this guy who like he's had this like really like. Um, uh, tough experience in the war he comes back to be a theatrical agent but you know his heart's under it he wants to write and uh, he's and he said oh but I can't write Anne because every time I go to work I'm at work and I'm not writing and she's like well why don't you try it in your spare time he's like oh I can't do that that wouldn't be true and honest and good it's like the like a, it's like a Hemingway like the biggest Hemingway parody you've ever read and it's delicious I'm going to just read most of this letter because it's so that man. Oh, is that? Okay, yeah, sure. She arrived back in New York to find a letter from Lyon waiting at her hotel. Dear Anne, thank you for the moment of reckoning. I should say five hours of reckoning. It was quite a long train ride and gave me time to think things out. If I want to write, there's only one thing to do. Write. Until now, I was searching for excuses. I had to work for Henry. He's his manager, Anne's boss. Then your house. The perfect setting. Seems I want things tied up in a neat bundle. Want the world to conform so I can write. Now who the hell am I? Kind of a cheeky attitude. Wanting you to slink about like the self-sacrificing little author's wife one reads about. I see nothing ahead but half-truths. Half an author, half a manager. Putting off leaving Henry until I'm a commercial success as a writer. Putting off marriage because I cannot be a full-time husband. I have only given part of myself to you, Henry, in writing. 
It's obvious I'm not capable of giving to all three. If not, I should at least pull out of the lives of these two people. Somewhere in wonderful New York, my dearest, there is the right man for you. <laughs> I have enclosed the keys to my apartment, Anne. It's the one practical thing I can do for you. I think it only fitting that you wind up with it. It's not much. I've taken your gift, the typewriter. Don't do anything silly like waiting for me. I warn you, I shall marry the first plump English maiden who will cook and tend to me. <laughs> I loved you, Anne, but you are too wonderful to accept such a small part of a small person who tried to scatter himself in so many directions. So I shall concentrate on writing. At least then, I will hurt no one but myself. Oh my Lion. God. Lion! Lion! Oh, it's so good. And, and like, for context, so... The, uh, Anne is like one of the most she's probably the only person in the book that comes close to being like a nice girl like she just kind of wants to have a nice life and live in New York and go to dinner occasionally and and uh, she's like the only thing in her life that Anne cannot abide by is New England where she grew up and where <laughs> <laughs> she grew up there her like she was um, raised by like her mother and aunt. They were very cold. Everyone around her was cold. She never connected with anybody. She fled as soon as she was old enough. She's in New York. She loves New York. The only thing she cannot ever imagine herself doing with her life. She'll move to England. She'll move to France. She'll go anywhere. She will not go back to that house in Lawrenceville, which halfway through the book she inherits. And Laura and like fucking lion like trots out there for the moment's funeral, being like, you know what? This is a pretty nice house. We should live here. And she's like, I will do anything for you don't ask me to move to New England he says I'm asking you to move to New England Anne (laughs) and then walks out like two days after she's had her mum's funeral to hightail back to New York write that letter leave for England and not talk to her for 15 years (laughs) and she holds out for him she always will she always will oh lion but the the thing about her childhood is there's a part where her mother says to her, uh, "No lady would cry. No lady would cry in public." And she says, "But mama, this is the kitchen." <laughs> <laughs> that's just hilarious, and that's just good writing. And the part where she says, "You're twelve now. You're not a child. You're a woman. You're, You're a lady, lady, and ladies don't cry in the kitchen." <laughs> There's a bit where um, she sort of has been going out with this sort of boy her own age since she was like fifteen. And she's like, aren't you going to marry him? And she's like, no, I don't love him. And like her aunt just turns to her and says, men can't be loved. <laughs> which is, I think, the moral of this book. The moral of the book is on like page 12, which is men can't be loved. Or rather, you love men, but they will cheat on you. And they will yeah. hurt you any way they can. Yeah. Neely's second husband. Oh no, he has the big affairs. <laughs> But only because Neely neglects him. That's the thing. If you could get men ne- right, so they wouldn't the, the hurt thing you. About, the, thing about, the thing is, what, what you can have men or you can have ambition, but you cannot have both. Um, and that and Neely learns this. So what I find so like tragic about Neely, and Neely is a very tragic character. She's like a very outsized Shakespearean like tragic character. Yeah. She's this kid who grew up on vaudeville and from like the beginning she's like, I don't want to be, she's, she's obviously talented, she doesn't want to be this big star, she just wants to make enough money, marry Mel, her like boyfriend, 
and uh, get out of the business. And like one of the first lines that we get from her is like she talks about how she has like no life and no friends and no education and she's in this boarding house with Anne and she's like got pigtails and she's just a teenager and she's like, I got a library copy of Gone with the Wind, a quart of milk and all these cookies. Wow, what an orgy. <laughs> like she's so cute. Lily's so and- cute. What's her name? What's her real name? It's like Mary name, Edith Mary Edith yeah. O'Neill. Yeah. She's just some mick with no class. Which I loved. As being a mick with no class myself, I love to see us <laughs> represented in literature. I and, mean, and I just, truly enjoyed the portrayal of the English as insatiable weird sex freaks. <laughs> yeah, there's constant reference to the English being decadent. Decadent sexually. Very much decadent sexually. Very much, oh, they want to share you. That's what it's like in England. And I have, I've read a lot of books about the English being repressed, but I've not read that many books where it's like, you know what the English like? Weird group sex. <laughs> Famously what they like. But like, to get back to Neely, there's this thing yeah. of like, she, she, just wants, she just wants to make enough money in the business because she can't really do anything else. Get out of it in five years and like have babies and be with Mel. And, like, she's quickly, like, grabbed by ambition. And, like, she gets this part because of her friendship and and becomes friends with both Neely and Helen Lawson, who's this aging sort of nightmare Broadway star at the same time. Uh, Helen Lawson, because she refuses to have anybody more talented or more attractive than her in her own show, fires her... Um, the second the second female lead and then under Anne's suggestion hires Neely instead Neely kills it and then like has this sort of like huge escalation to fame and becomes the sort of it girl and we see it sort of like morph Neely and turn her into this monster about this person who like has no real family or the family she has don't or doesn't really look out for her and we see this thing of, like what happens to people when there's nothing when there's no like rudder keeping them afloat do you know what I mean like unlike Anne she doesn't have good education she doesn't have this sense of propriety she just has this like scrappy thing where pe- various people are just pushing her in different directions and I, it feels like and like Jacqueline Suzanne did try and make it in Hollywood and she failed you know and and weirdly enough her kind of story was that she, her husband was this press agent who would always like get her into the papers for like the ti- her tiniest roles in little shows, and she married him because at first because she thought he could make her famous. So it's like a very Neely story, you know. Like she was very dedicated to him, and she dedicated this book to him and her dog. Um, but like, hang on, what? <laughs> yeah. So the, to Josephine is her dog. <laughs> to Josephine, who sat at my feet. Positive, I was writing a sequel, but most of all to Irving. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. 
every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com What I want to know is did Jacqueline and Suzanne have any female friends at all? Yeah, because and they've all given interviews about her, which I've been reading all day. I'm so glad you're having a productive day. Please tell me <laughs> everything you've learned about whether Jacqueline and Suzanne had any friends. So, like, apparently, so Jacqueline Suzanne's, for her early life, her main thing was becoming very, very famous. And she was extreme. She won like a Philadelphia beauty pageant. And as her like best friend told the media years later after she died, she died in like 1975. Um, she said like it was it was this that convinced Jackie that she was some tearing beauty. <gasps> she not not like my friend Jackie was a great beauty and she wanted to go to Hollywood. She, like this convinced her she was some tearing beauty. It was like your friends are mean, Jackie. Cut. If you said that about me, I would die. If I, even if I was already dead, I would be so humiliated and sorry. Imagine. So clearly, she had this like circle of friends who were like uh, all as bitchy as each other, and um, so she then she moved to um, New York, tried to like become as famous as she could, started a scrapbook about her fame, and like I, I read this amazing thing earlier on, which was like in 1945 she wrote next to a clipping being like, am I successful yet? And then she amended it five months later saying, slightly. And then six months later, she she pasted something underneath that and she wrote, oh yeah. (laughs) Like her relationship to scrapbooking is wonderful to me. She was like completely into her own thing. She she was really into having sex with famous Jewish comedians. Like she was, she cheated on her husband like a lot, apparently, which she later denied. But, um, you know, the receipts are very much there and shared by all of her closest friends who apparently have no problem ratting her out to Vanity Fair years after her death, which is very, very close to the portrayal of friendship in this book and probably her other books. Well, this is what I wanted to talk about, really, was that there's this very famous quote, which actually I had heard before I read this, which is, Close friendship with girl. Close friendships with girls come, come early in life. After 30, it becomes harder to make new friends. There are fewer hopes, dreams, or anticipations to share. Still, there was always someone to lunch with. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which is, you know, neither of us are yet 30. I'm 30 in three weeks. So I guess we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll see what happens to our friendship after that, when there are no more hopes and dreams to share. <laughs> 30 is the age in this book. After 30, you're dead. You're dead, yeah, you're dead, and and like you're too old to have children or attract any new men, and people will refer to you openly as old Ironsides. Openly, openly they refer to that. But the thing is, also, you can be thirty at any age. There's this line I can't find it um, of being looking twenty-eight is an infectious disease that catches that women catch when they're forty, which is. Such a fascinating line in terms of what he says about uh, her opinions about time and age and beauty. I, I love it. And I love the choice of like 28 specifically. Because I remember where that becomes in the book where um, Anne, when she first, wor- first wo- starts working for this theatrical agency, she's like, oh, wow, Helen Lawson's our client. I remember when she used to like come to my town and like, you know, sing and stuff. 
that's and like uh, her boss Henry is like whatever you do don't bring that up because uh, Helen would like to be 28 and she's like Helen like she's like Helen Lawson's an incredible talent like everyone loves her she's an amazing presence I'm sure she's not naive enough to think that she's 28 and then it's, that's when I think he says that thing about like it's an infectious disease after women turn 40 and like the thing is is that I love the thing of like once you reach that age there will be enough people or not that age but like that level of success there'll be enough people who are willing to tell you that you're 28 enough for you to believe it well it's like when later on when Jennifer so Jennifer the one who is divorcing the prince at the start of the book after a small catalogue of errors winds up making soft porn in France very successfully for some years when She's about to come back. Neely, by then a very famous movie star, says to her boss, Jennifer, but I used to live with her in New York. And, ne- oh, Neely at this point is, fa- is fat, which makes her old. Yeah, and, and terrible, morally and physically. It just, the portrayal of fatness in this book, guys, is unreal. There's a bit... It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, ex- there's a lot of, like, poorly handled topics in this and I think fatness is probably the most offensively dealt with of all like it is I think then again it's also representative of what I imagine it was in Hollywood in the 1960s I would say it's a sort of for me an even tie between the fat phobia which is grotesque I mean the word grotesque is used about fat people repeatedly as long with a lot of metaphors I don't really feel like reading out because they're just so horrible but it's I guess very telling homophobia which I found very fascinating because of this stuff of we're not like lesbians Jennifer we're not lesbians we're just women who have sex what's the what's the exact line about the yeah Jennifer um she has a very interesting backstory where she, her parents, who were kind of middle class, paid out the nose for her to go to expensive Swiss boarding school, which was quite like de rigueur in the 50s, I think. And um, the while there, she befriends Maria, like an Italian heiress or, or a Spanish heiress. Not sure. And, Spanish, um, because she can't get back to Spain because of the war. Yes. And they become lovers for, for years, like for most of her late teens, early 20s. Three years. During, yeah. The, during the war, she just stays in Switzerland has sex with Maria and has a great time. I just and was they're... Gonna... Yeah, go ahead. They became lovers the first night. Although Jennifer had been startled at the proposal, she felt no revulsion. Maria was still the exalted schoolgirl heroine, and Maria's logical explanation removed any taint of abnormality. We like one another. I want to make you know about sex, to feel thrilling climaxes, not let you learn about it by being mauled by some brutal man. We are doing nothing wrong. We are not lesbians like those awful (laughs) freaks who cut their hair. We are two women who adore one another and who know about being gentle and affectionate. And then they have so much sex. Yeah. Just for pages and pages and pages they have sex. But they're not lesbians. Don't worry. It's not gay if you're just two women naked having sex. That's not gay. That's just... A normal thing of friendship. It's fa- it's honestly it's fascinatingly done that whole segment because it's the thing of like um oh during the day there was absolutely no like coupledom they were nothing more than like fond friends who would go on like excursions together go skiing like have lunch and then at night they would fuck 
And like, it's this weird, it's the representation of like, female sex that like I've never, or girl and girl sex I've just never seen before, you know? But I think there's a weird attitude to sex in this whole thing, in that, well, I don't know if this is the same in your copy. In my copy, there's a foreword by Jacqueline Suzanne with the title, My Book oh, Is wow. Not Dirty. <laughs> wow, what does she have to say? Her book is not d- dirty. Mainly that, over and over again. She lists things that it is and uh, things that it isn't. What it is, is, let me find it. My book is not dirty, exclamation mark. Truth is often shocking. It is not dirty. Life is shocking. It is not dirty. There is nothing in Valley of the Dolls that is dirty. People often confuse savage with dirty, violent and dirty. To me, something in print is dirty only if it is used for prurient reasons. If it is inserted without necessity to develop a character or plot. Oh, come on. (laughs) Valley of the Dolls is savage, shocking and unfair, but never dirty. You know what? I agree with her, actually. Because, weirdly, none of the sex that... And there are many sex scenes in this book. And they are brutal and they are savage. But they are not sexy. They're not... like When when I think dirty, I think something that, like, is stimulating. Do you know what I mean? There like, is nothing not, sexy about this book. No. For a book with and, so much sex in it. This, you know, it's the kind of book that someone would give you at school. Like, with the corn... Like, you know, yeah. like, we talked about this in... Um, Oh, the Berlin Girl. Oh, the Berlin Girl, where the library book falls open at the page where it's like, ah, the incest scene. Everyone's mm. looking at it and feeling some feelings. <laughs> but in this, I can see in this book where the pages would fall open. But also yeah. it's sexy in that it, it feels like... It feels maybe like she's never had good sex. Yes. It's sexy in the way that I wrote about sex when I was 15, you know? Yeah. Just like, and then they did it loads. She felt a feeling of trembling excitement. It was good. And even like the one like quote unquote good sex scene where like a woman is enjoying herself in the book is when Anne has sex with Lion Burke for the first time. And it's so awkward. He like, and it must have been, I guess, what it was just like to have sex in the 50s where he like they're in her hotel room they're having a kiss he's like you should probably go home and she's like no and he's like okay in that case you can use the bathroom to change and then she gets undressed in the bathroom comes out and he's naked in the sheets and she just kind of climbs in <laughs> i'm like is that is that, was that, is that the sex scene where was that what it was whole, is that the sex scene where there's a whole load about her virginity yes and I mean, you say it's a nice sex scene. She's very clear that she feels nothing but discomfort and that's what it is to please a man. No, but then, but then, like, yeah, there's a kind of thing of, like, oh, in the morning it didn't hurt so much and then by Wednesday it was fantastic. <laughs> thing. It's the only tender scene because it's, it's all this yeah. stuff of, like, oh, he's gentle with her and all this stuff. And... and he's not. But the thing is, Lion Burke is always quite gentle with Anne. He's always quite gen- he's always like gently and heroically having sex with her and then walking out. He's always like gently and heroically like explaining to her the many complex reasons that he's inventing on the spot what they can't be together. Like we can't be together because I must move to England and she's like I'll move to England and she's like he's like ah well my house is really like, ah. small. I think that's my favorite <laughs> one is where he says that his house is small and doesn't have central heating. And 
and she, she's and like, I'd, she's be, like, I'd be happy anywhere. And he's like, no, you wouldn't. You'd hate me. And she was like, give me a chance to at least not like it. And he's like, no, I couldn't do that to you. And also, when he says, I haven't got the money to keep you. And she's like, I am a millionaire. I am the most famous model in New York. And he says, no, my pride couldn't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> All he's, the- he's constantly just like, oh, if only we could think of a way for us to be together. And Anne's like, I've thought of a way. And he's like, no, Anne, that'll never work. <laughs> Just tell her you don't want to be with her, Lion. Like, she's wasted her entire life waiting for you. But no one asked her to. She just keeps... She tells... The first thing Anne does in New York is turn down a marriage proposal from a millionaire. She doesn't turn it down, in fact. She gets engaged to a millionaire by accident, despite saying, no, thank you, repeated Several times, yeah. It's hard to imagine anyone turning down a marriage proposal more obviously and frequently. Nonetheless... She ends up engaged and has an enormous diamond that then forms the basis of her wealth because it's well invested. <laughs> and like, it's so weird. It's like it, it's one of those things where it's like the evidence of like, did did anyone sit down to plan this book? Do you know what I mean? Where where it's or did you just like keep writing things that you thought of on the spot? Because it's like 150 pages where we really get to know Alan who is like the first man she meets when she goes to New York. He seems like like a poor insurance salesman. She goes out with him as like a pity date and then she has no other friends. So she just keeps going out with him to these like cheap little restaurants and she's like, this is grand, I suppose. And then on like date 10, he like reveals to her like, Anne, I've been a millionaire this whole time. And she's like, oh, really? And he's like, yes, you pat. It's very much like, Charlie, you've inherited the factory. And she's like, I don't want the factory. It's very Charlie, you inherited the factory. (laughs) <laughs> because he's yeah and he and he says that you know you loved me when I was poor and she's basically just like I was bored I was bored and a cheap <laughs> dinner was better than no dinner and I don't want to get married and he's like yeah you do I yeah mean, give me a is- chance to win you and also he keeps saying to her like oh give me a chance to win you over and then she's like okay and then his winning her over is him taking her out to nightclubs with his weird dad <laughs> Over and over again. He's always bringing his dad on dates. (laughs) Constantly, like, they're never without his dad. Which is, like, where Anne kind of develops her first sort of, like, New York clique. Which I, like, really related to. Because I feel like whenever anyone moves to a new city, you have, like, your pals who you wouldn't normally be friends with. But you're kind of waiting until you get to your real pals. (laughs) And it's just, like, it's it's Anne, Gino the pervert dad... Alan the millionaire and um, Helen Lawson, who's an aging, the aging Broadway actress who wants to fuck Gino, who is Alan's father, so badly that all she does is stalk Anne to get like tips on how to get Gino, who has no interest in her. And that's her gang. That's her first gang of pals. Her horror, her millionaire boyfriend, who she hates, her millionaire boyfriend's dad, her aging starlet, her aging starlet only friend who is only friends with her because she wants to fuck the dad and the dad's girlfriend who's quite nice and just likes to sulk and be given fur coats yeah she's the only one who's having a good time can we talk about Helen and Anne because I'm obsessed with that weird friendship so I feel like now we've got on to Helen and Anne we can talk about the time that Helen won't stop calling Anne in the middle of the night to be like I've showered and washed my pants (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what do you think of that? 
What do you think? So it's like, I think what happens is, if I remember correctly, Anne like, has to drop off some contracts at the theatre for this new show that Helen's doing. And Helen's mm-hmm. like, hey, what do you say you and me get a drink? And Anne's like, I don't drink. And she's like, yes, you do. <laughs> and she like brings her back to her house. They drink like a bottle of champagne. They go out that night. And then Anne, uh, Helen decides that like Anne is like her pet. And she like keeps calling her and like Anne is like shivering in the hallway of like her little boarding house wearing a dressing gown on the payphone having Helen be like, well, see, I want a man, see, and I've washed my pants, see. There is, there is a Anne- fun conversation where Helen just explains that she's washed her panties and her stockings. And it's such a baffling, I thought it was going to get more lesbian at that juncture. Yeah, yeah. Because... I can't imagine ringing... I have many close, dear female friends. And I'm also not straight. But I can't imagine bringing any of those people and saying, I've just washed my pants. <laughs> yeah, especially if you, you spent the whole evening with them, you get into bed, and you snuggle down, and you're like, guess they just washed their pants <laughs> in the sink. Please, please, Carl. You're going to have... I'm going to ring you this evening. Midnight. Yeah. You wait. Phone call. <laughs> guess they just washed their pants. It does suggest that it's sort of an unusual occurrence. But also, I think we need to stress at this point, Helen is 34? Oh yeah, and she's treated like the oldest, brassiest woman there ever was. She's lived a million years. Yeah. She's so old and disgusting. And and weirdly, it's like, so she's in her 30s. The manager of the, the kind of like the big... um sort of uh, patriarchal figure, Henry, who's like the owner of the theatrical agency and is quite a constant figure throughout the book. Um, he's not he horrible. Kind of, he's not so horrible. I, I actually really liked him. Yeah. He's, I think he was... I just wanted to put in a word for Henry as we've been quite clear that uh, everyone else yeah. wants it. Yeah, it's like he's someone who like understands how the world works, doesn't approve of it, but is like, look, this is how it is kind of thing. Um, but so... It said that like years ago they were together, um, but like oh that was that was ancient history and they're both so old now. When like at the beginning of the book, like um, Henry is like in his fifties and Helen is in her thirties, which means she was probably in her teens or twenties then. And it's this thing, it's a constant theme of the book. And like, actually, we talked about this in our other Berlin Girl episode, the thing of like the women keep changing and the men stay the same age. It's like, it feels like almost like sci-fi the way that happens, you know? And like, they're, Helen and, and Henry are spoken about like the contemporaries when he is 20 years older than she is. That's so true. But Henry doesn't age and nor does Lion. Yeah, and that's like something that comes up a lot. Like that thing, that sort of, you, got, you really get the sense from Jacqueline Suzanne that she's like, not only do men have all the power, they also get to stay young forever. And they, they like, pe- like men like grey at the temples. That's the only thing that happens to men vis-a-vis time and age in this book. They go grey or they slightly thin their hair. Whereas women are like, oh, my face slackens. My tits are on the ground. I am like an ageing mass of blubber. And like, it's, it and feels all... like it comes straight from Jacqueline Suzanne's anxieties, you know? Yeah, they're all extremely concerned with they get to stay young as long as their bodies stay immaculately the bodies of 21-year-olds. There's a part where someone's looking critically at Jennifer and just goes, well, it won't last. Bodies like that don't, and then she'll be old. It's like, well, yeah, but no bodies last. That's not what bodies are meant to do. They don't 
Yeah. You know, nobody's last. But it is fascinating the way that men are young forever and women are young up until the point they're tasteful, not even that tasteful or that discreet. Tasteful, not tasteful, not discreet. Plastic surgery stops working. Yeah. And like, it, 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 it does almost kind of feel like like sci-fi. And even there's this thing with like, with Neely and the head, who is like the head of the studio she works for. I think it must be a facsimile for like Louis B. Mayer or Dana Rosanic or something, where it's like, it's this old, old man who just like, he's constantly just cycling through these starlets who he just chews up and spits out. And she just is routinely being called into his office to get screamed at by him. And Yeah, and he doesn't, that actually feels very sci-fi, doesn't it? The head. I'll tell you what else yeah. feels really sci-fi. It's all the treatments that you can have to remain young. So yes. there's this treatment called the sleep cure, which is where they yes. put you in a coma for a week to 10 days, sometimes up to three months if your child has died and you want to forget about it. That's that's a yeah. gig example from the book. Yeah. But they put you in a coma. They wake you up to feed you small pieces of diet approved food, but you don't remember it. They move you around so your limbs don't atrophy and you wake up 10 days or three months later and you're thin and you look young. That cannot... Is that... That's made up, right? Well, so I actually listened to another podcast on this book. Um, Ooh, a, a podcast right. called... I, I know, I know. That was my research. It was called... Um, I just want to cite their research because they're a good podcast and clearly they did a lot more work than I did um, called uh, I Don't Even Own a TV or I Don't Even Own a Television is what it's called. But um, they sourced the sleep cure. Um, apparently in the 1950s, it was uh, a practice to mentally ill women in particular or hyster- kind of hysterical women or whatever they were calling hysteria in the 1950s um, to put them in diabetic comas to sort of lower their what blood sugars. The fuck? Yeah, yeah, it was a thing, um, and and that would be sort of like a cure for um, melancholia or like women who just won't stop. The thing of like women who won't stop moping because their children have died comes up several times in the book, and is also like dealt with quite a lot in nineteen four fifties kind of psychology in general. There is like a lot of yeah, yeah, that, that sort You're of right. that post war period, sort of like women. Men coming back from war, women being shoved back indoors and given a bunch of pills is like a real theme of the 50s and sort of like that kind of sort of uh, experimental treatments like shock therapy, lobotomies, all had really big boom times around this era. Yeah, and I think it's one of the themes of really of the second half of the book, not so much the first. The first half is essentially how to get an addiction. And the second half is then what? And in Neely's case, so Neely's trajectory is she starts off as this goofy teenager, she has this great voice, becomes a major movie star, gets married, gets divorced, gets married, gets divorced. The scene in which she divorces her second husband is one of my absolute favourites in the whole book. And I'm going to read just the phrase, the sentence that she says, because I think it's... I've never read a sentence like it in my whole life. You're 
gods, she yelled. I catch you red-handed, and you stand there with your dingle blowing in the breeze and a naked broad in my cabana, and you sermonize with me. Who in hell is paying for this pool anyway? With your dingle blowing in the wind? And a naked broad in my cabana. In my cabana? Who the hell is paying for this pool? It's you, Neely. And then she pours a whole bottle of scotch into the pool to disinfect it from the sex that her husband is having with a floozy. Which is fucking baller. She's also eating caviar with her hands. Is it caviar? Oh, yes, I think it is caviar. She's very into the caviar, um, which she's constantly, she's constantly like opening her fridge and talking to her fridge and being like, oh, fuck it, I'll eat the entire jar of caviar. And like, it's, it's very convincing. Oh, a high person. You know what I mean? Writing. Yeah, you get the feeling that Jacqueline Suzanne had uh, certainly knew something about what it is to take a lot of pills. A lot of pills. And, like, I love this thing as well because, like, you know, Neely's, like, this, like, tiny little waif or whatever and she's, you know, morphs into this big glamorous superstar. And this thing of, like, when as soon as she gets home from the studio because they put so much in her stuff in her hair to catch the lights, she, like, puts lanolin in her hair and then puts it in, like, a headscarf kind of thing she has like cold cream all over her face the sort of thing of like she has to like protect this glamour so much to the point where she's kind of revolting to herself and to her husband and like she's that that description of her hair always being thick with like lanolin which is like just fat isn't it or is it vaseline yeah, or sheep sheep grease of some kind sheep grease yeah something it's like that just, it's so visceral to me, you know, and her just wandering around her house in a caftan, hair full of lanolin, just eating things out of her fridge and yelling at people is a mood. I mean, it's also, this scene is worth noting because it's another gay but not gay scene on the basis that she yells at her husband, I would have been fine if this was a boy like everyone else. And he yells back, yeah, you made me think I was queer. Which... In in terms of he thought he was queer, so he had he cheated on her with a lot of men. And it's so interesting to me to be like, and you know the worst thing about our marriage? I had to have sex with all those men to prove that I was straight and it wasn't It's like her. Okay. Yeah, it it doesn't hold stuff. up at all. Got some yeah. stuff to work through there. You got some stuff to get through. My I, I, my I, marriage I, is so bad that I was had to have sex with men to prove that I was still a man. <laughs> it's fascinating. Um Anyway, so Neely has these marriages. In one of the marriages, she has the twins, Bud and Judd. Bud and Judd. She misses their first birthday party because she's high. She misses everything because she's high. And then, her worst sin, she gets fat. She gets fat and bolshy. So they put her in a lunatic asylum. They say to her, would you like a sleep cure, Neely? And she says, yes. So they put her in a lunatic asylum. And in the lunatic asylum, she gets put in a bath... And they put a canvas lid on the bath where only her little head can come out. And she lies in the bath thinking, this is actually quite nice, but I cannot show them that. And in some ways, it's a very very good metaphor for any moments of happiness in this book. This could be so nice, but instead I will fight and scream and kill them. Oh, wow, you're dead right. Ah, Very clever. Very clever. Yeah, and it gets to this point where she's these, and it, it goes like very Stephen King at that part of the novel. It goes from being like quite a fluffy, fruity novel about like, oh, who's screwing who? Who's taking what? To like a good 50 pages of Neely just going out of her mind in this asylum. 
and like it feels extremely lived in like it feels really well observed yes and i want to compare it to something like for instance there is a scene we haven't really talked about jennifer yet there's a scene where jennifer's husband essentially rapes her while she's on the phone saying anne your mother is dead yes that scene is treated so lightly and fluffily. It's more like, oh, yeah. darn it. Now he won't marry me until the next time I get him all worked up. And it's like... It's so weird. That whole thing, because that thing was so, Tony Polar, where it's, yeah, like... So the gist so is, mad. she wants this guy, Tony Polar, to marry her. And the only way she can think to do it is to be naked in front of him, fondling her own tits and saying, you won't get these unless you go with me now to the chapel. And she's... He's almost there and then the phone rings and it's Anne and she has to, darn it, tell Anne that, her, that Anne's mother has died. And while she, her attention is distracted by being on the phone saying, I'm sorry, Anne, your mother is dead, Tony Polo just rapes her in, oh, what must be eight to 12 seconds. <laughs> yeah, and she's like, oh, for fuck's sake. Now, and the, the vibe is very much, now I'll have to start seducing him all over again. Thanks, Anne, and your dead mum. <laughs> And you look at the treatment of that, which I think, like, on paper, is probably one of the most horrific scenes I've ever read. The yeah. idea of trying to tell your best friend that her mother is dead. Yeah, because she, she got, like, a telegram, right? Yeah. Jen telegram. got a telegram, yeah. yeah. While your boyfriend rapes you <laughs> in anyone else's hands, <laughs> this would be a traumatic and crucial scene to both the plot and character development. It is not. It is is a minor inconvenience for Jen that she will have to start trying to convince him to marry her all over again. You compare that to the mental hospital scenes, Mm. which are quite bad, but really, apart from the bath, which is horror, horror, most of it is, would you like to make an ashtray in occupational therapy? Would you like to go to knitting class? Will you come to this journal lesson? Here are the other girls. Why not make friends? The mental hospital is the most traumatic thing in the book. Reading it, I was profoundly Mm. disturbed in a way I wasn't reading about the rapes or the cancer or the abortions or the brain damage or anything else that happens in this book, of which, as discussed at the beginning, there is a trigger warning Mm. for literally everything. There is no horrible thing that can happen that doesn't happen in this book. And the parts of it I found truly upsetting with these scenes in the mental hospital. And I wonder whether part of that is to do with, I'm trying to psychoanalyze myself here, but that feeling of being trapped, which I think is something we're all kind of thinking about and turning over in our minds at the moment, the idea Mm. of not being able to leave, only being able to Mm. go outside when they say for a limited period and having no control over your own life. So I wonder whether that's why I felt so viscerally like, oh God, I hate this, I hate this. Which again, to stress, I did not feel about the Tony Polar rape yeah. or the it's, horrible it's abortion true, or it's the cancer. It's truly chilling. It's that thing where you feel it in the pit of your yeah. stomach being like, this is unpleasant and it feels very real. It feels so real and I have done nothing to look into Jacqueline Suzanne's life, but it doesn't... It doesn't feel to me... Something about that trapped feeling feels very real. In a way that nothing else in this book feels real. 
That's the thing, because, like, I think it would be extremely easy to write this book off as being like, oh, it's trashy trash, or it's so it's so bad it's good, or it's whatever, or just or write it off as being, like, an artifact of a, of the 60s, and like, oh, okay, this was quite shocking for the time, because no one was talking about these themes. But I think um, to dismiss Jacqueline Suzanne as a writer, and to dismiss her as an observer of her own time would be to really undervalue it. Like, I think, yeah, the prose is purple, the soap opera is soap opera, but she's someone with eyes and a voice, and I think that's important, you know? There And there are flickers for me of something else in this book, and I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but I think it's really visible in particularly three places. The mental hospital. Mm. When, at the end of the book, Anne is, spoiler, married to Lion, and he's having mm. an affair with Neely, and everybody knows it. And everybody knows yeah. that Neely's career rests on her having an affair. There's there's another book that this is like, and I can't quite think what it is. But anyway, th- that part, Anne decides that the only thing she can do is ignore it because she will, doesn't want to lose him. Yeah. And she doesn't make a scene and she's there. And then one day their baby gets sick and she's just at the hospital. And then Lion's like, okay, well, this has been great. Us both being at the hospital together, but uh, my horrible mistress who I by now hate but can't leave because she is literally bankrolling us all needs me and she's like yep yes you better go and that feels very resigned and lived in and also I don't know if you remember this it's really small the reason Lion wants to become a writer and wants to do something with his life that isn't marry Anne and be very rich Mm. is because one night in the war he was in a French barn while a captain he knew, who was a young man, was talking about how best to fertilise his peach orchard back home in Virginia. Mm. And the next day the captain dies. Now, you think, this is a weird thing for you to bring up, Ella, because it sounds like it has no relevance to the book. And you're right, it has no relevance to anything in this book. This weird little story about how it made Lion think he didn't want to spend the last night of his life thinking about fertilizers for an orchard he's never going to see and i found that to be such a strange little interlude such mm. an such a specific weirdness how to yeah. fertilize your the captain was talking about how to fertilize the soil in a peach orchard in virginia that he was going back home to after the war yeah and then he died and this incident is all we learn about lion's war is that at some point He's, he too joined in a conversation about fertilizers in a barn. And this hideous moment of like, um, he has his observation about, uh, n- and like, and now the captain was the one who was going to be fertilizing a random field in France. And you know what I mean? Like basically talking about his body degenerating into the, into the grass. It's so it's like, it's- brutal. And also on the same vein, as a part where he says to Anne, Anne, Right now, I'm not sure if I can write. I'm not sure the book will even be good. At this very moment, there must be half a million XGIs sitting at typewriters, hammering out their personal versions of Normandy, Okinawa, or the London Blitz. And each of us, we really have something to say. It's just a matter of who says it first and who says it best. And that, to me, is a weird and tender observation that I had, that had never occurred to me, that for every war novel we read, for every famous story about men going to war written by someone who came back from war there are um, half a million more we never see because they just weren't good enough Mm. but it doesn't mean their stories weren't important 
And that's a kind of fascinating kind of casualty, casualty of war that I had never thought about before. And it's really interesting to me. I've just reread Kate Atkinson's A God in Ruins, mm-hmm. which is entirely about... Have you read it? No. No, I haven't read any Kate Atkinson, but I will. I someday. love her and think she is one of the greatest living writers. And I hated A God in Ruins when I first read it. And I'm not going to sort of explain why, because it's too good a twist and too good a book to ruin, to shine light on the Valley of the Dolls. But it is very much about loss and tragedy and the stories that don't get written and the stories that don't get told. And I felt that this moment had a weird, accurate poignance to it. A Mm. weird... Oh, that is the truth. There are a million people sitting at typewriters trying to write a story of someone they knew fertilising a peach orchard who's now dead. And I... Yeah. There's this secret vein of real trauma in this book and it doesn't pop up where you'd expect it to so Jennifer's cancer which uh, turns out to be both in her breasts and in her ovaries I believe mm-hmm. we know this which is common we know this because her husband who we have not met at any point her fiance who we have not mm. met at any point who feels like some kind of Kennedy step in, right? Yeah, he's a oh, from a rich family. He's a famous senator, handsome Democrat, or a handsome Republican. I can't remember. He's a Republican. They're all Republicans. <laughs> now, this is how <laughs> she has come in. Determined- this is by far the most ridiculous part of the book for me. I screamed this was the point where i texted you and said i have upgraded this book from a you should read to a must read okay so she's got cancer breast cancer and ovarian cancer she's just found this out she's very worried because she won't be able to have children with win the senator and he's not gonna love her anymore he stroked her hair You weren't afraid you'd lose me? Oh, my beautiful girl, you'll never lose me. Don't you realise I'm just beginning to live because of you? He kissed her breast through the filmy nightgown. You're all I want. Not babies. You. At first, when we met, I turned away from you, remember? She nodded and stroked his head as he lay against her breasts. He kissed the firm skin. But you changed me. Made me realise I wasn't running from you. I was just afraid. Jennifer, you taught me how to love. He caressed her breasts. These are my babies, he said softly. These are the only children I want to lay my face against their perfection each night. He stopped as his finger stumbled against the bandage. What's this? What have they done to my babies? (laughs) Her smile was frozen. It's nothing. I had a just a small cyst. There won't be a scar, he was genuinely horrified. No, Winston, they drew it out with a needle. No scar. Again, she knows she needs a mastectomy. Yeah. That's all that matters to me. Let them take out your ovaries. I couldn't care less. That's not you. I've never met your ovaries. But as long <laughs> as they don't harm my babies. He caressed her breast again. Oh, I've never met your ovaries. Anyway, Obsessed. that night, she uh, sneaks out of the hospital, books herself into a hotel. Jennifer was lying on the bed in her most beautiful dress and full stage makeup, clutching an empty bottle of sleeping pills. 
the note to Winston Adams said, Dear Win, I had to leave to save your babies. Thanks for making it all almost come true, Jennifer. Oh, my God. I... It's... Uh... It's so funny. <laughs> there is just nothing so funny in that scene. It, it's too hard to even be triggered by it, right? Because it's so ridiculous. The idea that a woman would come to her husband being like, I just went to see the breast cancer doctor. And he's like, great. So long as they don't touch my babies. The only, my babies. Children, the only children I want. <laughs> There's a lot. Are your breasts. It's incredible. And also, what I love about this as well is like, it's it's pure pantomime because it's like um, minutes before Wynne gets there, Anne is there and Anne is like being very logical and sensible and she's like, and, and Jen is like, no, I can't get a mastectomy. Like, all I have is my body. And like, Anne is like, you're an amazing person. Like, give like Winston a chance to love you and like he will see you through this have more faith in people have more faith in men yep. and Jen's like okay and then Wynn just walks in and says all that matters are your breasts I've never met your ovaries but I love your breasts and in fact they are my babies they are my only baby also this man has multiple children real children oh, yeah. not breasts but the only children he needs are her breasts and it's just Anyway, the point was, it's very hard to feel any kind of genuine trauma about that scene because it is ridiculous. The whole pantomime setup of, okay, but don't tell them about the breasts. The breasts? (laughs) Not the breasts. I meant the breasts. (laughs) (laughs) The whole pantomime setup is ludicrous to me. Oh, like, it's... So, and this is, but like, Jen is a beloved character. Like, she's like a, like one of the nicest people in the book. Like, she's really sweet. She's really fun to read about. Like, she's really dedicated to her mother. She's really dedicated to her friends. And like, she is a main character. And she, this is how she is killed off. And you don't hear about her again. There's not like, oh, and then the funeral and this was the. It's not a turning point in the book. It's just, oh, I guess some people die in books. I guess some people die in life. <laughs> Which, you know, not wrong. Not wrong. Not wrong. But things like that and things like the Tony Polar rape. Why is Jen? Why is Jen having a really bad time? There's no trauma. It's just like, ugh, guess I better kill myself now. Or, ugh, now I'm going to have to try another way to get him to marry me. Whereas with something like the mental hospital... Anne trying to keep a brave face on her husband needing to have an affair. I found that bit really affecting. I'd love to zone in on that a bit more. more I also found like, it really affecting. The thing, the thing about that whole segment with um, sort of Anne, who's who's now married to Lion, and having to suffer through the sort of not only the personal pain of the affair, but the the public indignity of everyone knowing and it being so obvious and it making the papers and all this stuff, is that like she's also being coached through the whole thing by Henry, her old boss and lifelong friend. And like, he's constantly just being like, it's a bit like she's a boxer who's been like 
punched out and is sitting in the corner of the ring bleeding from her face and having her coach pep talk her it's like those that's the tone of these scenes and he's just a bit like um look you can win this like she's a fucking cobra she's an asshole he like she's gonna show her true color soon enough you're the constant you can win i have faith in you you're strong enough you can get through this you just need to get you just need to grit your teeth but you can and will win and she listens to his advice to the letter and it all works like he does get tired of Neely. He does ditch her. Neely attempts suicide for maybe the sixth or seventh time in the book. And uh, Lion doesn't come running. He just kind of like fobs it off. He's like, ugh, we've made as much money as we're going to make off Neely O'Hara. So fuck her. And Anne is like, it says the thing like, Anne like want after like, a year and a half of like stomaching this infidelity, she expected to feel like some kind of triumph. But all she felt was that like she had bought herself a little bit of time. And the final scene in the book is her hosting a New Year's Eve party with her amazing friends in her beautiful house with her lovely husband, with her gorgeous daughter. And she goes into like, she goes into the, her child's bedroom to just pick her up because she's feeling a bit lonely. And Lion comes in and starts kissing a 19-year-old starlet in her bedroom. And she's just like watching glazed out on second old because she now has her own pill addiction. Just being like, yeah, this is it. Like she's won, but what has she won? And it's that there's a really awful line where she's like, yeah, she still loved him. She'll probably love him less next time and a bit less the time after that and so on. There's no way to win. There's no... no there's, men there's can't no be loved. It's, it's, it's a very fun book, but ultimately when we talk about it, I feel very depressed. Yeah, for the thing is, for the first half, I was having the thrills of my life. And for the second half, I was quite upset but also compulsively reading. I was, yeah. I felt a compulsion towards this book in a way that I don't often. I yeah. needed to know what they were going to do next. And I find that inc- I find that fucking amazing, though. That Considering that this came out in, like, what, the 60s? 1960-something? Um, 1966. It was an immediate smash, like, 28 weeks at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And that was a fucking long time ago. Do you know what I mean? Like, the fact that we can still be shocked by this, find this so compulsive, and this to be not even of our mother's generation. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. all, like... It's, well, they're all it's born in, in the th- war. They're all, you know, they've all fought in the war. They've all... Yeah. You know, the first scenes of the book are all, well, you know, Jennifer is in Switzerland having sex with Maria, who can't go home because her country is on fire. Um, yeah, whereas Neely and Anne were kind of too young in the war to, really and also they're in America, anyway. and you really feel the difference between the people who are in Europe and the people who are in America. Yeah, and there's this like there's this line lions in their their kind of like first lunch they have together, where he's like, oh, sometimes it feels as if like women didn't even know the war was happening, and you feel this like resentment towards them, and it's like this this constant thing as well of like um oh, men all stick together on things like this. And it's like the sense that the previous decade, men and women have experienced extremely different lives and they are in some way at war with each other. I mean, actually, in the essay she writes at the beginning of my edition, the My Book Is Not Dirty... um, Which I love and I think she's fucking great for doing. There's this bit where she says... 
she literally says, if one writes about war, about battles, one cannot merely write about the bright uniforms, the roll of the drums, the victories. There is mud and slime and amputation and gangrene. Ugly, shocking, but truth. And I wrote Valley of the Dolls. I think that's fucking great. I love Jacqueline Suzanne. And uh, we're, we're really running a time now because we've been talking for a really long time about this book because there's so much to go on about. Uh, but I want to um, share some brief facts about Jacqueline Suzanne. A potted biography. A potted biography. And I generally don't do this on Sentimental Garbage because I, I think it's... First of all, it's such a trend that we take facts from a female author's life and apply it to their fiction. And I think that's completely bogus. So I try not to go too biographical. But she's such a huge figure in writing that it kind of behooves you to get to get into her more. And um, first of all, Jacqueline Suzanne, who kind of tried to be famous for most of her 20s and late teens, um, had absolutely no qualms whatsoever about writing celebrities into her books. So Tony Polar, the rapist lounge singer who uh, has a mental age of 10 and ends up in an asylum, where actually he later meets Neely, is based on Dean Martin, who was Jackie Suzanne's <laughs> Dean Martin of the Rack Pack. Um, he apparently he was her childhood crush, and then she grew up and met him, and he was really mean to her. So uh, she wrote him into Valley of the Dolls as Tony Polar, the rapist with the mind of a child. She repeated the same trick when Norman Mailer was sent a press release copy of her like a galley of Valley of the Dolls, sent it back via his secretary saying he didn't think he'd have time to read it. And then she wrote him into her next book as a pugnacious war writer with a child-sized penis. A, who sends a proof bag? Surely that's more hassle. Just put it in your pile like everyone else. But also... Right? It's just... What a woman. What a woman. I strongly urge everyone to look up as many interviews with her as possible because she was a fucking character. And like also, another thing that I found fascinating and very sad was um, the reason she started writing was because she got breast cancer in her, in her 20s or 30s um, and sort of said, sort of made this pact with God. And she was like a very religious woman. Um, she made this pact with God that she would do something useful and she would finally write um, once if she got better and she would write books and she would try and make a real success of herself because she always knew that she was good at it. And then throughout her life, even after she became extremely wealthy and kept putting out books, she'd keep saying like, I made a deal with God that I wouldn't do something useful with my talent and I'm not about to let the side down. Like she thought it was her pact with God to write Valley of the Dolls. And I'm like, yeah. That is a phenomenal thing that I'm going to keep thinking about forever. Yeah. I have made a I pa- find her But the thing is, do you know what it is? It's that thing of doing the thing you can do to the best of your ability. Yeah, and she did it. And, and um, you've got to respect it. I do. I respect this book deeply, and I respect every single one of the millions of copies it has sold. Yeah, every one, completely. And, like, there's, uh, uh, like... Also, we spoke briefly about... Uh, Jacqueline Suzanne and institutions and how she writes about that asylum that um, Neely is in and uh, what I found out was her so her she had one child a son who was um, 
really severely autistic diagnosed really young uh, in a time when they were just basically finding out what autism was was put through sort of electroshock therapy at the age of three and uh, yeah which is fucking appalling to think about apparently it absolutely just ravaged Jacqueline Suzanne um, so that he was in he, they recommended that he, they put him in like a kind of a, a home for mentally ill boys or whatever where he stayed for the rest of his life and where she apparently visited constantly and I think that's kind of where her observations about institutionalized life came from I mean what's fascinating about that is that you could have such a traumatic thing happen to you and then create Tony Polar <laughs> I know right the idea of who is Tony Polar Jennifer's middle husband has the mental age of 10, which you don't find out until quite late on in the novel, where it's used uh, in order to convince someone to have an abortion. Jennifer to have an abortion, in fact. Uh, yeah. But that's fascinating. And Tony Polar is not a sympathetic character, and his mental illness is... You never really know what it is. It's described in the book as insanity, which... Huh. Yeah, it's very strange. It's, it's something, he's kind of... He's, he's got the, the mental age of 10 as an adult... And it's going to de- degenerate, so by the time he's in his 50s, he'll be insane. That's what Tony Polar's disease is. Yeah, I mean, like, what? that's the interesting thing about this book. There's a lot of trauma here, but it's never where you expect. It's very surprising in that way. <laughs> things that should be traumatic are very funny and weird, and things that should be funny are deeply traumatic. Yeah. And, I mean, I guess in, in, that, in, in that sense, it's a very accurate portrayal of trauma interesting that all we talk about on this podcast now is trauma how have we swung this <laughs> maybe it's because we're in a traumatic time anyway i think that's all i've got that's all i've got to say on valley of the dolls the weirdest and most compelling book i've read in a long time i i completely agree with you and i just want to finish this with, because there's no point casting this because uh it's been cast already it's been made several times but i want to finish on a quote from jacqueline suzanne herself she says i think i'll be remembered as the voice of the 60s andy warhol the beatles and me and I fucking agree with her. I think she represented women's lives in a time where women's lives were not being represented and in this way. And I think it's fucking more power to her. I respect, I respect Jacqueline. Again, every one of those copies sold. All right. <laughs> every one. This has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at zaralineodonoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com